Hey everybody, Jennifer here, and I want to welcome you to a very special episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This is a show to celebrate our first birthday. Yes, I've actually been doing Art Curious for one whole year as of today, August 10th. And oh my gosh, it has been such an adventure. This show has grown so much in the past year and it's gotten so much bigger and so much better than I had ever imagined. So I had hoped initially that this little project of mine would end up with maybe a few dozen subscribers and super bonus points if those subscribers weren't my friends or people related to me. And so the day that I hit 1,000 downloads on my very first episode was huge, like beyond huge for me. But now, only a year later, I have tens of thousands of subscribers, really, across all kinds of platforms. It's not just iTunes, but also Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Radio Public, and all these other podcasting sites, as well as those of you who prefer to stream and or download directly from our website. So today, I just want to thank you for your listening, your appreciation, your engagement, and your feedback. So please just let me say thank you from the bottom of my heart. I had always hoped that there would be an audience for storytelling about the fun and the weird in art history, and you have really proved it to me. So thank you for listening, subscribing, and also for sharing. So part of what I want to do to celebrate the show is that I wanted to turn the microphone over to you, the listeners. So on social media and also on our uh, special announcement episode that we put out a couple weeks back, I asked you to send in your questions about whatever you wanted, a true AMA or, you know, ask me anything. And oh my gosh, thank you guys. You totally followed up. I got submissions via our Art Curious voicemail line, from our email, from the website contact form, and then also through across almost all social media. So I want to thank each and every one of you who submitted. I just wish that I could have answered all of your questions, but I had to narrow it down to my favorites. And so if I didn't answer your question today, don't worry. You can always contact me again, and I will do my very best to get to you. So now, on with your questions. Okay, our first one is from Tim in Lubbock, Texas, who emailed us at artcuriouspodcast at gmail.com. And he writes, my question has to do with art schools. I'm a big fan of art and always have been. I also watch a lot of Antiques Roadshow, mainly for the art, and they often make references about an artist having studied at one art school or another. Do they actually mean they attended a specific formal art school or do they mean something entirely different, something not so formal? Okay, so this is a really good question, Tim, and I have to admit that it isn't something that I ever really thought fully about, so thank you because you've given me the opportunity to do so. The short answer is yes. It can actually mean both of those things. It can refer to an actual art school, like when art historians talk about an artist being part of the Bauhaus school, for example, meaning that he or she actually attended the Bauhaus school in Weimar, Germany in the 1920s or 1930s. But it can also mean a grouping of artists or individuals who share common characteristics or themes in their artworks. So for me, I think of it as something kind of similar to when people say um, school of thought. I actually think about this in terms of the Hudson River School of the 19th century, um, 19th century American landscape painting. This is one of the ones that always pops in my mind. Those artists were part of the school, but they didn't actually attend a physical school together necessarily, but really just adhered to the same concepts and were probably also inspired by one another. So I hope that helps. That's a really good question. 
the next one comes from Erica in Scottsdale, Arizona, and she writes, how did you get where you are today as a museum curator? Okay, so I get this question all the time, and I actually kind of love it because I hope that it gives people permission to feel okay with changing your mind, changing directions, and also to keep pursuing your dream, whatever that is. Long story, as short as possible. I was originally a science major in college, and I had zero interest in art. Like, none. Not even a bit. And I ended up being registered in a basic Artistry 101 course as a freshman, simply because all the other electives I wanted were basically closed. They were already at capacity. I just couldn't get in. I was talking with a course counselor who literally opened a course catalog. If you were too young to remember those, um, they were giant books filled with information on every single class that you could possibly get into. And she opened it at the very beginning and stopped at A, at art history. And she said to me, oh, these classes are huge. Everybody takes them. Let's just see if we can get you in. Boom. I was registered in my very first art history class. And I wasn't happy about it. So here's where I admit that I was that person that said that art was boring. So basically, the same person I'm trying to help or influenced by doing this podcast, that was me like 20 years ago. To my vast surprise, a few weeks later, I realized that I thought this stuff was totally fascinating. And art history really quickly became my favorite subject. And two years later, I made it official and changed my major. Fast forward a couple years, and I've completed both my bachelor's and my master's degree in art history, and I took a couple years off to work in an art gallery in Los Angeles before choosing to go back for my PhD in art history. But after a couple of years of, you know, really hard work and intense study, I started realizing that I was unhappy because I felt like I was getting further and further away from what I really loved, the art objects themselves, and those cool stories that have always been associated with them. For me, the the coursework, really, became all about theory and breaking things down, and stuff really just seemed too obtuse, like the art itself wasn't as important as the philosophies that could be applied to it. And so that's when I opted to make a big change. I knew from early on that I wanted to work in an art museum and that being a professor was just not what I ever wanted to do. I felt like I was being pushed towards being in that theoretical professor position, so I chose to leave the PhD program. And I have to admit that I was initially super disheartened. I knew that I wanted to be in a museum, but now I really didn't know how to get there. I made contacts where I could, I visited museums, and I kept myself in the know about artists and exhibitions and all that. And I made some cold calls and cold emails to places whose collections I admired. And luckily, one year later, I landed this position in the curatorial department at the North Carolina Museum of Art, where I've been for almost 10 years, and I love it. But it's really funny because it was never my intention to be here. I fell into art and found one of my biggest passions, or I guess really my biggest passion found me. So if I was to give advice to anybody looking to do something like this, I would say just be open to trying something new. Be open to changing your mind, and it's totally okay to work in fits and starts if you're unable to pursue your dream whole hog. You can get there, even if it takes a little bit of time. Our next question is a voicemail. I'm curious whether your day job of being a curator in the arts has any effect on your evening job as a uh, podcast host. 
thank you for that one. And yes is the quick answer. So as I mentioned, I work full-time as a curator, and my specialty is contemporary art. So mostly I work with living artists. And I've got to say that I really enjoy that. I love hearing what an artist thinks or feels about the artwork, of being able to quote from them directly, because that's really special to me. And obviously it's something that's much harder to do with an artist who isn't from the modern day, although there are books and letters and so forth that you can quote on from older artists. But it really does affect the podcast, too, in that limiting myself to contemporary art during the day really makes me miss all the other stuff, too, um, which is something that I lovingly referred to as the old stuff. But because that's where this all started for me, I began my career studying art history. And even today, many of my favorite artists or works of art are from before the 20th century. And so wanting to get back to that love of art history and of doing research on the works of people who are long gone... That was one of the reasons why I really wanted to do the show. And there's also the fact of the matter that there are lots of really great contemporary art podcasts out there, and there are far fewer that are art historical in nature. There are some really good ones, but not as many as there are with contemporary. This really just ended up being what I chose to do. Greg Franklin at Greg Grumbles on Twitter asked, did Picasso actually say, no, you did this, to the Nazis when they asked him if he made Guernica? Love your show. Thanks, Greg, first and foremost, for the kind words, and second of all, for mentioning what I think is probably one of the most incredible paintings of the 20th century. There is a lot that can be done and unpacked around Guernica, and it certainly doesn't fit into the time that I have allotted just for this episode today. Suffice to say that I can give you just a little bit of background. So for those of you who might not be familiar with this artwork, Guernica is basically Picasso's masterpiece. And it's this huge painting that's been totally stripped of color so that it's completed only in black and white and then shades of gray to create this powerful and really sad scene that's meant to be very anti-war and anti-violence, which is totally perfect for our current season of Art Curious, by the way, because it was essentially created as a response to the bombing of the village of Guernica in the northern part of Spain in the Basque region by the Nazis and Italian fascists who were working in conjunction with one another during the Spanish Civil War, which was one of the big lead-ups into World War II. So I'll go ahead and I'll put an image of this up on our website for those of you who would like a visual. You can find that in our blog under today's episode. The story goes that during World War II, Picasso was living in Paris during the German occupation and that his studio was visited one day by a Gestapo officer who looked around the room and then saw a photograph of the painting, which was completed several years earlier in the late 1930s. And it seemed to me like the officer either probably wasn't all that familiar with the man he was currently visiting, um, or he just was really not at all in the know about contemporary things. And he pointed to the picture and asked Picasso, did you do that? And Picasso supposedly replied point blank, no, you did. Whether or not he actually said this isn't something I'm able to confirm totally, but I've also found nothing in my cursory research that suggests that it's a myth. Plus, we also know that Picasso was not only talented, but he was also a provocateur and super witty on top of all of that. So it would not surprise me if this is a true story. Time for another voicemail. Hi, Art Curious. My name is Julie, and I work with preschool age children. And I was wondering if you had any tips on introducing young children to art. Any um, basic ideas that maybe uh, we could talk about with young kids. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much, Julie. I have to admit this was one of my favorite questions that came in simply because I'm a mom myself and getting kids interested in art is important to me personally. I'd say that with kids, especially with really young kids, it's probably all about exposure. Now, let me step back and say I am not an early education um, specialist. I'm not uh, an arts educator per se. I'm a curator, so this is a kind of a different realm for me. But I would think that from my perspective, it really is all about exposure. So take them to museums or galleries, get them very colorful picture books at the library about art, and then start them with some very basic concepts like talking about color or shapes or subject matter. And I think something that's really easy to do with kids is to ask them questions like, what do they see and what do they like and what kind of art do they want to see more of? Another thing that I think is just as important is to validate a child's opinions about art, just like it's important to do that with adults. One of the things that I often say most to people when we're talking about contemporary art is that you don't have to like it. And there is also not one single way of looking or reading a work of art. Um, speaking about contemporary art, sometimes it can be very particularly challenging or edgy or just plain ugly, and it's simply okay to feel negative feelings about it. I'd just expose kids to anything that you can and to have conversations with them about how it makes them feel and then let them know that there really are no wrong answers. Another thing you can do is that after you show them a work of art or you go to visit a piece in a museum, then you can come home and do some kinds of hands-on projects about it. So one of my favorite things to do is to ask kids to create their own versions of something. And for modern or contemporary artists, you could really use things like YouTube for super good enhancement here. So one of the first things that's popped into my head, um, whether or not this is practical, is that maybe you could talk about Jackson Pollock's action splatter paintings, for example. And you can even show a video of him dancing around his canvases on the floor or painting on panes of glass so that you can really get a feel for how he's dripping the paint on cross everything. Then, if you really want to be creative about it, you can set up a drop cloth, outside preferably, just in case, and encourage the kids to act out their inner Pollock. Because, I mean, really, who wouldn't want to have the chance to jump around and fling paint? I mean, seriously, I would. That's another easy way and super fun way to get kids engaged in the art, get them thinking about the process, what it takes to create these works of art. Jay from Los Angeles asks via email, I started listening to your show not knowing very much about art or art history, so help me out. What's the difference between classic art, contemporary, modern, and any of those other styles I've heard about? <laughs> you know how every field has their own language and terminology, like chemistry or filmmaking have their own vocab sets? So it's the same with art history. When you're first studying art history, you have to learn this new language to go along with it, like what linear perspective is as opposed to atmospheric perspective, or what sfumato is, for example. But terms like classical, modern, and contemporary are really words that help us delineate works of art based on time periods in which they were created. And, you know, same goes for Renaissance and Baroque, even though each of those time periods have a lot of very different characteristics that define the works of art therein, too. So what you call um, classic, I think you might mean of something that's classical, which just roughly breaks down to talking about works of art that were made in ancient Greece during a particular era. 
things do get a little more complicated when you come into the difference between modern and contemporary because there are lots of varying opinions. We don't have quite as much historical perspective on the the blurred vision they're in. At a very basic level, modern art is work that was roughly created between the late 19th century and the mid-20th century. And then the work made after the 1950s or 1960s is usually called contemporary. Picasso is modern, and Jeff Koons is contemporary. But some curators and institutions use different cutoff points for making that distinction between modern and contemporary. Some people think that contemporary art begins in the 1980s instead of the 1960s. And then at my own institution, we have an even funnier, very unofficial delineation. If an artist is still living, his or her work will be under the purview of a contemporary curator. But if he or she is dead, it belongs, so to speak, to the modern curator. But then again, that is super not official, and it's not a perfect system either, because say that Kahindi Wiley died tomorrow, God forbid, um, we wouldn't just reassign him to modern art. His work is still very contemporary because it's very much about what's happening in our world right now. That's a very big question and probably uh, an incomplete and kind of complicated answer, but hopefully it'll be helpful for you to at least get a taste of what those terms mean. Next question, also by email from Jenny from Cary, North Carolina. She asks, for your podcast anniversary, my question to you is, out of all the museums you've traveled to, which is your favorite and why? Keep up the awesome work. Oh, Jenny, I love all museums. I love, love, love them. Um, I think that I have a few different favorites because, uh, besides the one in which I work, of course, My most recent favorite is the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, which I visited last fall while on a visit to Russia. And more of that can be heard in episode number eight, if you haven't already heard it. Um, I was just blown away, not only by the collection that they had there, it's completely incredible, but also the environment in which the art hung, because it was the former winter palace of the Russian czars. So everything was crazy ornate, golden, just totally amazing. You were surrounded by beauty literally at every corner. On a much smaller level, one of my favorite institutions stateside is the Rubin Museum of Art in New York. The Rubin is dedicated to the arts of the Himalayas and its surrounds. So places like India, Pakistan, Nepal, Tibet, China, and countries nearby. And they show both traditional art and contemporary art. And oftentimes they do it in conversation with one another, which is something that I love as a contemporary curator slash art historian, because it's like scratching my two itches at the same time. It's also a personal favorite just because I'm very, very interested in Asian art in general, and I'm fascinated by things like Tibetan sand paintings or Buddha Tonka paintings. And on top of all of that, the Rubin is just such an intimate institution. And there's something to be said for museums that are super manageable, as opposed to ones that are just so big that there's no way you can see even a fraction of the collection in one day. Two more questions to go. First up, one more voicemail. Hi, Jen. I love your podcast. My name is Dorian Lind. I'm an artist out of Los Angeles. My question is, do you feel that there has been a concerted effort to erase women from art history? And if you do, why do you think that is? And how can it be addressed and remedied? Thank you so much. Okay, I saved this question for nearly last because I have to admit that it was one of those whoa kind of questions. It's 
very good question, very important, very timely, but one that I don't feel totally prepared to answer. So I'm going to give it my best shot. Um, And I think that because this is a super complicated issue, I'm probably going to be giving you a semi-unsatisfying answer and say yes and no. So Dorian, please forgive me. Let me explain. I've spoken on the podcast before about the trials and difficulties of being a quote-unquote woman artist, historically speaking, and I've said that there are all kinds of different factors that prevented many women from becoming artists, let alone famous ones. And that includes everything from a lack of family support to lack of money or education limitations to simply being thought that anything outside of domestic labor or raising a family was just unwomanly. I say no, first of all, because there are all of these things that just worked against women doing any number of things. It was just a sad reality of being a woman where they just didn't have the opportunities like men did and living in a patriarchal society. And so in that way, it wasn't a purposeful or personal act necessarily, and one that by no means was limited just to the art world. On the other hand, yes, there are instances where women artists were left out in the cold because they were women. They were undervalued or considered lesser artists, not only for being women, but also particularly if they were artists who were engaged in so-called women's work, like using watercolors or pastels or textiles, or if they were working in quote-unquote women's subject matter, like if they were painting portraits of families or children or flowers. Historically, there are all these hierarchies that were invented by men that promoted more of what men were able to do. And I think one of the worst examples of all of this are when works by women artists were considered so good in technique or so skilled in subject matter that people just flat out claimed that a man must have painted it, that it was just too good otherwise. So This isn't even close to being a complete answer to this wonderfully involved question, but I hope it at least is a start. And if you are new to the Art Curious podcast, I would recommend that you go back and listen to episode three on Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, and also to episode 20 on Sofonisba Angosola to get even more background on the historical problems that were faced by female artists. Our last question today comes from Art Curious Carla by email, and she says, Hi, Jen. Loving all things podcast. Congrats on all your wonderful accomplishments. On to my question. I can't remember the artist, but that famous painting in the Louvre of two bare-breasted women, one pinching the nipple on the other. Supposedly, this painting tells of a mistress to a nobleman who is pregnant, thus the pinching of the nipple. Is this the real story? I have always loved that painting, and when I heard that this was supposed to be the true story, I thought it far-fetched. What say you? The first thing I had to do is that even though I knew exactly which painting you were referring to and I could picture it in my mind, I couldn't remember the title or the name of the artist who made it. So I started by Googling what is probably the weirdest phrase that I've ever typed, which was Louvre nibble pinch. So (laughs) luckily, you will be pleased to know that there... um, Pretty much the only things that showed up were information on this painting themselves and nothing else. So, you know, that's good. Here are the details. The painting is by an unknown artist who was probably part of the School of Fontainebleau. So there you go again, Tim from Lubbock. And it's titled Presumed Portrait of Gabrielle Destre and Her Sister, the Duchess of Villar. And it's from the late 16th century. I went to the source for this one, which is that I went to the Louvre's website and found some information there. According to Louvre curators, your memory does serve you correctly. 
The models have been identified as Gabrielle Destray, who was a favorite mistress of King Henry IV. And Gabrielle is shown with one of her sisters in their bath. The copy on the website for this work reads, quote, The oddly affectionate way in which the sister is pinching Gabrielle's right breast has often been taken as symbolizing the latter's pregnancy with the illegitimate child of Henry IV. This interpretation would seem to be confirmed by the scene of the young woman sewing, perhaps preparing a layette for the coming child in the background, unquote. I did get a little bit of looking into this painting because I think that most viewers are kind of amused or confused about the nipple pinching gesture. And I wanted to know if this was a traditional symbol because I certainly don't remember seeing a lot of similar paintings with this type of subject matter in art history classes. And so in short, this led me down a rabbit hole about how pregnancy portraits were a thing in England during the same time period. So you would see portraits popping up during the time of noble women with these large, beautiful bellies underneath these exquisite dresses. But in France, this was not a thing. It was all very hush-hush, and you just didn't portray pregnancy, let alone really talk about it. And then this matter was complicated by the fact that we have a scene of the king's mistress, not his wife. And so it would have been, uh, I think, indelicate, to say the least, to announce if she was expecting a baby. But nevertheless, the nipple pinching is a way of subtly signifying this fact. And so it's acknowledging the fact that soon enough a baby will be born into the household. And the only way to really acknowledge the mother's hand in this is to insinuate that milk production was in her future. So hence the nipple. Weird, I know. Now, uh, it would be wrong of me not to mention that there are also a number of erotic interpretations, especially about lesbianism, that were floated in the 20th century and also onwards into now. And I think that these are completely valid takes, but that historically it might not be totally accurate if the identification of the sitters are to be believed. But that is a podcast for another day. So that's it, Carla. And that's it for you, Art Curious listeners. Thank you again for an incredible year. I hope that you enjoy our second season and the second year as much as you've enjoyed the first. And remember that you can be in touch with us at any point, not just during our anniversaries. You can contact us via our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. You can email us at artcuriouspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. If you want to help make our show even bigger and better in this second year, please consider donating $5 to our show. That's the equivalent of one big fancy coffee, and it'll help this little show that comes out for you for free every two weeks. You can help us via our support link on our website. And again, thank you for listening and see you next time.